Welcome to Political as Heck, a new podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, a Utah native recently returned home to Zion, and I'm excited to partner on this project with the esteemed Utah State Senator Todd Weiler, a man who needs very little introduction. Hey, oh, hey, Corey. Hey, thanks for inviting me on the show. This is, uh, I'm really excited. This will be fun. Me too. I think we're going to have a good time. So we want to help you to get to know us more intimately. So we're going to forego, Todd and I are going to forego the usual bios and jump right to the heart of the matter. Todd, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who like arugula and those who don't. Where do you stand? What's arugula? <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, I, I, I should tell you, I, I learned about arugula for the first time back in uh, 2008 during the presidential campaign. Candidate Bar- Barack Obama at the time was campaigning for president. He was in Iowa in some small town and people were complaining about the price of things. And he was complaining not a pr- about the price of milk, but he went on to join the group and say like, I can't believe how high the price of arugula is. And of course, Corey Astle, like from backwoods, Utah, I'd never heard of that. Had to look it up. And it became a well-publicized gaffe because most of the people of Iowa had never heard of it either. So years later though, my wife and I tried it at a friend's house. We're a little more hoity-toity than us. And I loved it. Well, there you go. I I remember that gaffe with Obama. It was kind of like Mitt Romney's uh, car elevator in his garage in California. Yeah, exactly. But I just always assumed that Arugula was like the the ugly cousin of kale. So I, I haven't really gone on my way to try it. Oh, it has real flavor. I mean, I don't want to turn this into the Arugula show, but uh, <laughs> unlike kale, that tastes like nothing. Uh, anyway. All right. That's enough personal sharing. All right. Let's talk some politics. All right, so we've uh, we've experienced an uptick in COVID cases, both in Utah and across the country. And I think there's an additional concern that some health officials have, some epidemiologists, because of this Delta variant yes. that's uh, kind of a, a different strain that transmits more quickly and sometimes can cause more s- severe symptoms. California has gone ahead to reinstate the mask and social distancing mandates in their government buildings. They love the mandates there. They just can't get enough of all of the masks and, and, and all that stuff, all the things. California is all the things. I feel like some people like, uh, and many of them are in California. There's just a certain type of person that just gets excited when things are bad and it gets excited when we can go back to, yep, let's you know, shut our, locking shut, it, down. Shut it down, shut it all down. That's, <laughs> I mean, governor Newsom, Gavin Newsom in California, he has one, one play in his playbook. It's shut it all down. No doubt. So governor Cox had an interview with Washington post and said, he doesn't think COVID restrictions are going to fly anymore. Instead, he said, uh, we need to focus on vaccinations. And it actually is the case that in Utah, Utah has actually reached the 70% of adults for f- having- for, for one dose, for at least one dose. For, well, one or two doses. 70% of the adults have had shots in the arm, which is great, but a, a high percentage of those have, have not had their second dose and, and may never have that booster shot. And, and that, that's the problem with the two-dose vaccine. And that's, that's why it was, it, it was so- tragic that the government kind of undermined people's confidence in Johnson & Johnson, because not only do you have to get people to come back for shot number two, then you have to get them, you know, they have to have the same booster if it was um, Moderna or Pfizer right. or whatever. And logistically, it's it's hard. And if people went home and got sick and their arm hurt after the first shot, they're like, I'm not going back for that. And there's no way to make them. So the, the beauty of Johnson & Johnson is it's one and done. 
but unfortunately the, the the government kind of undermined everybody's confidence in it for for no good reason yeah i totally agree with that it got captured by just bad bad information yeah well so uh hhs secretary javier becerra and the white house have both said that uh we need to, they need to start going door to door looking for vaccine holdouts those people who who are still unvaccinated and uh, of course uh, a lot of republicans in congress were like what are you talking about? And they, he had to immediately backtrack it. My question for you, Todd, how should state officials handle this? I don't think we're going to go COVID or I don't think we're going to go the California route. And Governor Cox says it ain't going to work for us to go back to wearing masks. I know that my gym, they're not going back to masks. They're not going back to masks at Walmart. So what should we do? You know, most Utahns have already spent two years going door to door. So um, <laughs> no, I did. Uh, so I don't think we're going to do that. We've had enough of that. But um, look, we, you know, hopefully this Delta variant fizzles out. This is not the first time. It's not the second time that we've heard about this variant that's going to scare us all. If you look at Utah since May 1st, over 93% of everyone who's contracted COVID, who's died of COVID in Utah, over 93% are unvaccinated people. So the, mm. the governor is, the focus is right. We, we need we need to encourage, not force, not mandate, but encourage more people to get vaccinated. Of course, you'll never get everyone to do it. But the but the the landscape has the landscape has changed in my mind, Corey, because six months ago, you know, we it was all about protecting the vulnerable people. But right. you're not going to see a shutdown just to protect the people who choose to not get vaccinated. And so, I, I don't mean to be callous or cold, but anyone, I mean, again. Ninety-four percent or higher of the people getting COVID now, and we've had a thousand cases in three days last week. They're the ones that have chosen not to get vaccinated for for whatever reason, and and it's America that they it's freedom. Um, they can choose that, but that but they can't always choose the consequences. So I think the gov- the governor's on the right course that we continue to kind of be cheerleaders. Hey, go get your vaccination, go get your second booster shot. But I think the rest is kind of up to uh, up to people to to live their own lives. Yeah, I agree. I mean, at some point we have to have personal responsibility and, you know, you assume the risk and that's okay. I mean, I, uh, in full disclosure, I got the shot as soon as I could get it, but I totally support other people. You know, you got to make your own choice and, and you assume the risk right now. I think that, um, companies are really dealing with this, uh, you know, should we mandate, should we not? There's a recent Harvard poll that's, that showed folks, there may be some support for, for mandating vaccines for teachers and healthcare workers. But beyond that, it's basically like, no, and corporate America, I happen to know, is really shying away. They're probably not, they're not going that direction because people just need I to decide. I promise you, the Utah legislature is never going to support a vaccine mandate of any kind. Now, and if the federal government tries to cram that down the states' throats, I think you'll see a civil war break out. I really do. <laughs> so I, I don't think I we're it. going there. I do think you're going to see some private businesses say, if you're not vaccinated, then you're not welcome. And, you know, and that's not government. So that's a whole different debate. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Utah received $1.6 billion or so from the American Recovery Plan. That's the, just a reminder ourselves. Uh, ARPA is kind of the acronym, but that was the, the Democrat-only bill that was passed in March. You know, we had a couple of, well, we had three COVID bills, major COVID bills passed last year. Those were bipartisan, but this year in uh, in March, the Democrats only passed a bill using uh, expedited procedure known as reconciliation. And uh, anyway, the Utah legislature approved legislation to spend 571 million of that now. 
and the plan is to save the rest for the 2022 general session. So Todd, you're in the middle of this. Can you help clarify, you know, what decisions did the legislature already make and what should we expect for the, for the general yeah, session? And, and just one clarification. So Utah and every other state, we only got half of our ARPA funds in 2021. We'll get the second half in 2022. So the federal government, uh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Most people don't. And so of that half, We've already committed to fund $103 million for business and economic development, $100 million for water conservation, and $165 million for social services. And that includes a food bank in San Juan County, as well as mental health services and vaccine distribution. You know, we, we approved back in the special session of May kind of a plan of how that money would be dispersed out. And we had a, a couple of goals, and, and I just I'll, I just want to kind of give a little behind the scenes because this is one-time money. Well, it's two-time because we're getting half and half. But our goals were this. We wanted to use this money to first, create a generational impact. Second, provide statewide benefits to citizens statewide, not just you know Davis County or Utah County. Three, generate sizable benefits without future liability. And lastly, we wanted to address long-term challenges in our state. And remember, this is money we didn't ask for and didn't necessarily need yeah. <laughs> because Utah is doing quite well. Um, but, you know, there, and I'll just be honest, there's a lot of Democrats in Congress that want a whole bunch of federal money to bail out states, you know, liberal states like California, Illinois that are that are going bankrupt. Um, Utah is not in that situation. So we'll spend this money. We'll spend it wisely. We'll spend it on generational impacts. Uh, but it's not money we asked for and it's not money we, we needed. That's good insight. It's a great point about uh, the money going to basically to bail out some democratic cities and states. I mean, New York, for example, New York, New York City had just expanded, had these massive expansions of social programs that that are way overfunded, uh, underfunded. Uh, same with obviously, you know, pension funds um, in, in so many cities. And part of that uh, ARPA also sort of extended the the bonus unemployment benefit that, uh, that many folks were getting um, who were who were unemployed. And uh, Governor Cox ended that bonus unemployment benefit on June 26th. That's correct. Now there's, t- now, yeah, so which is a good thing, I think. But uh, because I mean, Utah unemployment rate is 2.9 percent, and employers that I work with all the time tell you that the biggest obstacle to hiring is, is finding interested applicants. And look, this is not laziness on the part of people. I, I think the optimal decision, when given the choice to make more money and stay home, the optimal decision is to stay home. And it's also true that some see this as a great opportunity to change careers. So, you know, their re-entry is stalled a little bit. So, you know, once again, I don't, you know, necessarily blame anyone. I also don't disagree that some employers need to pay more. I know Democrat, a lot of Democrats are saying like, well, the problem is employers need to pay, pay more. Well, maybe in some cases that I'm not going to say that that's not completely true, but uh, it's not, a, it's, we're not talking about a free market when the government is dis- distorting. And yeah, Amazon's <laughs> advertising on the radio a thousand dollars signing bonus and twenty dollars an hour to come work for Amazon. That's pretty good. Um, you know, you don't good. need any any specialized certificate or training. You know, I have a liberal business acquaintance, and um, he was complaining to me recently that he couldn't hire anybody because they were making more money staying home collecting unemployment with the added benefits. Yeah. And he's a liberal guy, and we talk about politics sometime. And I said, "Dude, welcome to the Republican Party. <laughs> uh, come on in; the water's fine." Yeah. Well, now there's some talk of actually repurposing that money for, uh, well, at least the the bonus unemployment benefits. A lot of Republican states, not just Governor Cox in Utah, but are bringing that to a close. And Mitt Romney and others are talking about repurposing that money for for bipartisan infrastructure plan. But 
let's talk about that another time. Yeah, speaking of ARPA money, um, the IRS is set to start distributing the new child tax credit payments. What do you think Utah should expect with that? So next week, yes, this this is a new thing. So we've had the the child tax credit. Historically, it's been well. It, it used to be one thousand, then it turned to two thousand, and, and for the during the for the COVID um, expansion bills, it uh, it went to three thousand dollars for children over five and thirty six hundred dollars per year for children five and under. And what this latest uh, the Democratic bill in March, what it did was directed the IRS to start paying these, giving these payments, not at the end of the year when you perform your tax return, but instead on a monthly basis. Now the IRS is not ready to do this really at all. They're not equipped to do it. They don't do stuff like this. And they've only had six months to try to figure it out. So there is going to be major bugs. And I do want to flag for people that if, if you make over $150,000 a year jointly, spouses together, there may it may be the case that, uh, that you're going to get these payments per month, which break out to be, if it's five and under for every child, five and under is 300 bucks for every child, uh, between five or, you know, six and 18 is $250 a month. But if you make $150,000 a year, you're going to get phased out. So there's a very good chance that you're going to get these payments and then you're going to have to pay it back <laughs> when you oh, do wow. your tax return. So what Democrats had in mind with this, I mean, Senator Romney put forth a similar plan and in some ways it was a little bit more generous, but I mean, what the Democrats have in mind here is a, a uni essentially a universal basic income for children. And if you guys remember during the presidential campaign, you had a, a few candidates who, who were talking about creating a universal basic income for people where they get a, you know, a certain amount per month. And I, this particular program is only set to last a year, but uh, I think the next, the next reconciliation package the Democrats are going to put forward. I mean, I think they're going to try to make this, uh, make this permanent, which costs probably about a trillion dollars to make this permanent, but, but it's essentially a, uh, universal basic income for children so that uh, the, the money will continue. And for, uh, here in Utah, we're going to be huge beneficiaries of this because so many kids, yeah. in fact, more kids per capita than anywhere. But uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I, I think, you know, some folks are going to start to like it probably, yeah. but uh, we're looking at a trillion dollar price tag for it. Wow. You mentioned what, what we remember about the presidential campaign. The only thing I remember, Corey, is that fly landing on Mike Pence's head. <laughs> I've forgotten everything besides that. Yeah, speaking of federal issues, I don't know if you heard this, but Congressman John Curtis recently organized the first Republican Climate Change Caucus, and it's focused on educating Republican House members on conservative climate solutions that align with Republican principles and values. You're the DC expert, Corey. What do we know about this climate, this Curtis Climate Change Caucus? So Representative Curtis, like a handful of Republicans, is is starting to think uh, more seriously about this issue about climate change. And you know, to give to to give you a sense, I think that you know historically Republicans have been pretty negative towards uh, towards climate change, mostly climate change response. But uh, what's what's really changing? I think I think there's probably not a lot of folks in Congress anymore that. That would let's say say that uh, you know climate change isn't real, but there is uh, there is a changing attitude among Republicans about like okay well if it is real and this is what this with climate caucus they'll say climate the climate is changing and the humans are contributing to that change really the the it's a, it's a global issue and the major obstacle is China and other um, you know major economies and the way to kind of address it is not to shut the economy down but to 
invest in innovation, you know, R and D and that sort of thing. So this, uh, so this caucus, it's, it is new and it is, it is innovative. They, ha- he has about 60 to 70 Republicans, including the entire, you know, Utah delegation of, of representatives, but to give everybody a sense, like U S emissions, a greenhouse emissions dropped by only 10% last year during COVID. You know what I'm talking about? Wow. Basically, the, the the economy shut down, and it only reduced emissions by 10. percent And the the Paris Accords would require 100 percent reduction by 2040. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a pretty tall order. And of course, you have you know groups like the you know Southern Utah Wil- Wilderness Alliance coming out saying like, oh, this is just a this is just a smokescreen to give political cover for Republicans. And it's frustrating because you know. I think Curtis is really putting himself out there a little bit in, in, in a commendable way, but you know, it'll never be enough. I don't know. What do you think, Todd? Good thing or bad thing? I think it's a good thing. I, I think that um, what a lot of people don't realize is uh, all of these millennials, and I know that's <laughs> the, so dirty word to some people, but they're not as uh, conservative as their parents were. And if Republicans continue to, put their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 when it comes to climate change discussions, I think that they're just shooting themselves in their foot and and, and their own feet. And I'll tell you, Corey, as a Republican, and I've been this way for several years, I believe that core temperatures or, you know, surface temperatures are rising. I do. I do believe that humans um, are part of the reason that they're, they're, you know, human activity is part of the reason. But here's the problem with me and John Curtis and, and all the scientists in the world, nobody can agree what to do about it. And right. <laughs> what I'm not willing to do, what I'm absolutely not willing to do is absolutely ruin Utah's economy um, uh, to, to try to do something. Meanwhile, nobody else changes things. I don't know if you recognize this, but Utah is a drop in the one drop of water in the ocean when it comes to um, greenhouse emissions and everything else. And um like you said, even when we have COVID shut down the whole country for a few months, it was just a, a very small change. And so the problem with climate change is not, for me, is not acknowledging that it's real. It's deciding a path forward. And you ought to see some of the emails I get as a Utah legislator. People think that like if everyone in Utah like um, turned off the air conditioning and, and, and stopped <laughs> taking long showers, that all of a sudden like the climate in Utah would get better. Like the, you know, like, like, like we have a little bubble over us and it, it, you know, we can control the climate just in our state. And I don't think it works that way. I think it's a global, <laughs> it, it'll take a global initiative, a global effort. And you're not going to get uh, China. You're not going to get Indonesia. You're not going to get India to do anything because they're still racing to catch up with the United States and, and Europe, and, and they're not going to stop polluting. And that's a huge problem. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not a denier, but the, the, the solutions are a lot more complicated. No, I think that's right. And, I, and actually, I think that's why what Representative Curtis is doing is, is, is the right thing, because, you know, you need a worldwide solution and that ain't, is never going to happen. So what you really need is you, you, we need new technology. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the way to get out of this, this problem. And Trump is. got roasted by the left for pulling out of you know, the uh, Paris Accord. And of course, there's Kyoto out there. And the reality is, is um, out of all those nations, I think the United States is the only one or, or the one that reduced the most, even though we pulled out of it. Um, and and all of these you know countries in Europe that were all, 
you know, rah, rah, rah. They didn't, they didn't do a damn thing. I mean, they, they, so I, I think it's all lip service right now. And I don't, I don't see that changing uh, in the near future. I hope I'm wrong. I just don't think I am. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, another one of our representatives from Utah, Chris Stewart, he co-sponsored a bill recently to eliminate gain of function research. Well, did, or, or is it federal funding of gain of function? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Federal funding for gain of function research. So, so first what of all, is it? I'm, I'm no scientist and I don't want to play one on TV, but gain of function, as I understand it, is when you take a virus, when scientists take it and then they start kind of playing God, they start messing around with it to see if they can, they can make it more powerful, more contagious, more deadly. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a way of kind of experimenting with it. And we know that this was happening in the Wuhan lab. Um, and we know that some federal monies, uh, were being directed to the Wuhan lab through one intermediary, uh, even though Dr. Fauci under oath denied it, uh, Rand Paul, uh, knew more than Dr. Fauci did, or Rand Paul was more honest and, and transparent than Dr. Fauci was. Um, and so I like this legislation. Um, I, I, you know, I can't prove it, but my, if I had to bet, I think that it's much more likely that uh, COVID started as a release from the Wuhan lab than, than from a, uh, a wet market in Wuhan that yeah. didn't sell bats. But, um, but I don't know how many people have researched it, but there was a, there was some coal miners in a cave in China. This is well-documented back in 2012 and they all got sick and the, the cave was filled with bats and bat dung, uh, bat droppings. And I, I, you know, it's pretty well known that that's where um, something related to COVID was, was captured there. And that's, and they've been playing around with that virus since, um, since 2012 or 2013 in the Wuhan lab. And that's likely what escaped out. Now I don't have any evidence um, and, and we may never know, but uh, this, this whole wet market theory never added up for me and, and millions of other people, including some pretty influential scientists. Yeah, totally agree. And we, I mean, we don't want to start the conspiracy theory, but uh, I, I personally agree with you that I think that it's overwhelmingly likely that this came out of the Wuhan lab. And it's also a kind of the, what I call the, the, the death of expertise too, and, and of the experts, because you, you know, you, re, you really had a large number of sort of prominent epidemiologists and all those professors from Harvard and so forth. And of course the world health organizations swatting this down and saying, this is just racism. This is but that just was then, this, that was then this is now they swatted it down because we couldn't let any um, narrative try to, yeah. you know, take the pressure off of blaming this on Trump. Exactly. And now that Trump's lost, now you're seeing scientists come out and say, oh, wait a second. Oh, maybe it could. You yeah. know, maybe we dismiss that a little bit too fast. And of course, most, hopefully most of our listeners know that, you know, that letter that came out last May, uh, I think signed by 18 or so scientists saying, yeah, we shouldn't dismiss the, the lab leak theory. Of course, we don't know. But as I understand it, Corey, and I'm not an expert, there are three places in the world where yeah. coronavirus <laughs> is related to bats are studied. One is in North Carolina. One is in Texas. And the third one is in Wuhan, China. <laughs> right. What are the chances? So what are the chances? Yeah. So Governor Cox recently accepted uh, an invitation from President Biden, or at least from the White House. I don't personally believe that President Biden is making very many, if any, decisions himself, <laughs> uh, to serve on a uh, presidential board of governors. Do you think that's a risky move for him politically? 
Well, so this is a, this is a board of governors that I, I'm sure uh, Biden, who's who's in the basement right now, uh, what they've asked him to do is is join this board where they're talking, have discussions about national security and disaster preparedness and you know international terrorism, kind of the ideas to strengthen partnerships between the federal government and state governments. It's one of those situations. If you remember uh, in well. Uh, John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, he just put out a book, and and it was really interesting. While he was Speaker, he had to sneak through the back door in order to ever visit with uh, with President Obama or ever have conversations with him. I don't think that's healthy. At the same time, can you imagine any Democratic governors agreeing to join a Trump bipartisan Council of Governors? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think Utahns understand that you know being in the room has more value than not being in the room. But what do you think? Well, I mean, I think as I understand it, there's like four Republican and four Democratic governors. I think it's a, a little bit prestigious that Governor Cox got asked. I mean, if it was all Democrats and him, that'd be one thing. But this is designed to be bipartisan. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it shows that he's that he's taken seriously, that he's well respected. Um, he's one of the, gov- the youngest governors in the state, but not as young as Governor DeSantis in Florida, I, I recently found out. Mm. who's clearly gearing up to run for president. But in any event, um, I think it's a good thing for Governor Cox. I think it's a good thing for Utah. And I think anyone who's going to criticize him for working in a bipartisan way with a Democratic White House is a little bit short-sighted. Agreed. All right, last item. Allie Isom just announced that she's joining the race against to challenge uh, Senator Mike Lee. So she joins uh, Becky Edwards as uh, you know two prominent challengers. We'll see if we get more. Todd, what do you think? What do Isom and Edwards need to do if they want to beat Mike Lee? Um, <laughs> look, at, I've known Allie Isom for almost 20 years. Uh, she and her husband, Eric, are friends of mine. Um, I've known Becky and her husband, John, for um, almost as long. Um, t- Allie and Becky are two of the finest people I know, uh, both um, good, good people. You'd want them as neighbors. You'd want them as friends. Um, both solid people with, 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 you know, good political resumes behind their names. Allie, of course, is a former campaign manager for Mark Shurtleff. She worked for Governor Herbert for, um, for, for many years, and she's had other, other positions. Becky spent 10 years in the Utah House of Representatives, recently returned home from a, a mission to uh, Samoa, and she's married to uh, Lavelle Edwards' son, John Edwards, who hmm. is a surgeon who actually uh, operated on me once. So these are right? good, these are good people. Now, I would say this to their face, and I'll say it to you, Corey, and I'll say it on this podcast. Neither of them have any chance of winning, <laughs> likely. <laughs> and I say that with all the love uh, in my heart for them because they're both very good people. Now, Becky started off a little bit earlier than Allie. Um, I think on her June 30th fundraising total, she showed a half a million dollars raised. Some of that was her money, but half of that was her money that she put in and half of it she raised. Allie announced her campaign on July 1st to give her the full three months for her first fundraising mm-hmm. cycle. And so this is a lot about you know raising money at this point. And it's much harder to raise money for a federal race in Utah because Governor Herbert could go around and get a few $50,000 checks. Um, Allie and Be- Becky can't do that. Neither can Mike Lee. But Mike Lee is going to, he's going to have all the money he needs from Club for Growth and others. Um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of numbers that Allie can put up in her first three months and and if, if Becky can continue that momentum. But, you know, Mike Lee, um, I think he, he had a huge gaffe last October when he was down in Arizona and compared Trump to Captain Moroni. 
I think that offended a lot of Utahns for, for good reasons. Uh, but I think people are forgiving and I think people have short memories. And when the election rolls around next year, I don't think that that's going to be enough for anyone, including either of those two fine women, uh, to, to, to beat him. That's a strong take. And in, in full disclosure, I've known Ali Eisen for a long time, but a big fan of hers. I think she's a, an impressive individual with a lot to contribute. You know, same as you said. I, I don't believe I've met Becky Edwards, but she certainly strikes me as a, a serious legislator. And she's certainly more the more moderate of the two, probably. I mean, Allie's been pretty conservative as long as I've known her. They seem to both have the same critique of Senator Lee, you know, more or less that he has a, a, a rancorous and divisive manner that doesn't serve Utah well. That's, I think that's the kind of the message. It'll be interesting to see how well that message sells. You know, it's similar to, seems to me like how Spencer Cox approached his gubernatorial campaign, but of course that was an open seat and, uh, you know, John Huntsman, a true moderate was, uh, was the principal alternative. So I don't know. I, I suspect, uh, They'll need to draw some some sharp distinctions, and it's not clear to me that enough people are dissatisfied with Senator Lee or view him as particularly divisive. They'll probably have to show that if, if they want to get some traction. But yeah, and you know, there's also this name of Henry B. Eyring, um, who's bouncing around. He's a young professor, from what I understand, a researcher. I think he's the grandson of the Henry B. Eyring that most of us have heard of, um, and he's um, he's clearly thinking about a run, but doesn't have really a lot of political connections or political or, and no political experience. But the biggest problem with Al, Al, the biggest problem that Ali Isom has is Becky Edwards. And the biggest mm. problem that Becky Edwards has is Ali Isom. Yeah, because, for sure. um, you know, even let, let's just give a ridiculous scenario. Let's say that they all three are on the primary ballot next June. And let's see, let's say that Mike Lee is, is weaker than I think he is. So let's see, say he only has 40% of the vote, but if Allie has 30% and Becky has 30%, they both lose, right? Mm-hmm. Even if there's 60% voting against Mike Lee. Now, I think what's much more likely is Mike Lee is going to have 55 or 60% of the vote, but um, they, they are going for the same anti-Lee voters. They're going for the same, you know, maybe people that want to see the first female uh, from Utah elected to the U- U.S. Senate. And uh, as long as they both stay in the race, um, Mike Lee's got to be just wringing his hands as happy as can be. If one of them drops out and the other one starts gaining traction, then, then you know, it may be a lot more interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. But with both of them in the race, they, they are single-handedly ensuring each other's uh, loss. Great points. Should be interesting. And I'm sure we'll have plenty to discuss as things unfold. All right. That's it for our first episode. Catch us next time.